All right, people, we're back with yet another episode of Talking Thrones. This time we've got season four, episode seven. Like I said, we're in the back half of the season. And like I said, continuing with what we said last week, banger every episode. Although unlike last week's episode, which was kind of a little bit reloaded, this episode, Benny Off and White, they do this every season. They always have one episode where they're just like, we're just going for it. Because, man, it was, I forgot how good this episode was. Dude, um, I totally agree. And. Let me tell you, the Talking TV family is going to be excited. Uh, Candace Everdeen is here. The Mocking Jay, you know everything. About, oh, wait, this is there we go. Mo- there we go. Mo- Mockingbird. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry, I totally messed up on that one. But uh, I knew we're you about had to it see at least a good episode of something. Uh, yeah. Maybe not, uh, you know, Hunter, maybe, Hunger maybe Games. not Hunger Games. Yeah, maybe, maybe a little bit time displaced there. But all of that and more on today's episode of Talking Thrones. You know, Pat, we have one of these episodes at least every season where we have like the big ones that we aim for, right? The ones that we know we're like, okay, we know we got a Reigns of Castamir. We know we got a Baylor. We know we got a Blackwater. We know we got a uh, Battle of the Bastards coming up. You know, we, we know we got a hard home coming up. And occasionally we'll have those episodes where we're like, man, I was really looking forward to this episode, but only really for that one event. And then you remember that the rest of the stuff of the episode is kind of whatever. But then you'll have the, the random ones, you know, the random surprise that'll just come in. You'll be like, wow. It was a way better episode than I remember it being. It was, I remember what the one from season two was. It was a man without honor in season two, episode seven of season two. It was probably second sons uh, last season. Um, and then this season, this season we had a couple, but oh man, I think that the title of, I think the award for episode that we were not expecting to be as great as it was and then surpass our expectations goes to this episode, Mockingbird, easily. I don't know. <laughs> What's your take on that? Well, one? Just uh, the only... That. The only thing that's on my mind, Dom, is what your thoughts are on if Jennifer Lawrence was cast as Marjorie in, in Game of Thrones. Ooh, tricky. Um, I gotta say, no. Because what uh, what, the, what other role would she be great for? You know. Um, I don't know. Roz, maybe, maybe. You know, early she would have already been too big and famous by that point because at that point she'd already won an Oscar. So because that's the thing people forget, Hunger Games is actually. 10 years old this year, which is kind of wild when you think about it. But I don't know, man. There's a reason why they were so specific with the casting for this show. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, I can fantasy couch or, uh, you know, uh, cast this all I want. Oh, but uh, hey, listen, um, you know, this episode really very powerful with the writing. I think yes. uh, scene after scene after scene uh, really just had, you know, these miniature micro stories uh, to tell with our characters and. Um, the fact is, you know, it, it's just it just totally works the whole entire thing. Yeah, Benny Off and Weiss usually see this happen once we get into the second half of the season with some of the episodes that they write. Like I said, this is the first season since season two, I think, where they were not majority writers on all of them. We had Brian Cogman writing two episodes. We had George R. R. Martin obviously contributing his last episode that he wrote for the show earlier in the season with the Lion of the Rose. We have another actual, um, um, you know, a final thing that comes in this episode. This is the last episode directed by Alex Sakharov, who previously directed last week's episode, Laws of Gods and Men. He also directed The Climb for season three and What Is Dead May Never Die for season two. Is the last episode he directed, and I will say too that in addition to the writing the directing for this episode is i don't know why there was something really really striking about it just like the way the shots were composed the way that he built tension with each scene with like some scenes that were again very minimalistic because the other thing that you usually see that happens with episodes like this that come in the second half where 
They don't really have a big episode. I mean, this episode being an exception because it does, but you'll see these episodes where they kind of are just setting you up for like the final couple of episodes. And they'll just, again, every scene just hits the way that it is where they're able to mix like these events that don't seem really significant, but they're just so well done and well portrayed by the characters and the actors that they've been working with for about like roughly like four or five years at this point now. It's amazing. So like, so again, like you have three conversations with Tyrion. It's like, wow, after the God tier monologue that he delivered at the end of last week's episode, you got his moment with Jamie, which is kind of like a nice like refresher almost like making this like a you know like a part two of last week's episode then you have this conversation with Braun, and then you don't, don't think you're like okay they can't top that and then they have the one with Oberyn at the end you're like oh my god that's before we even get to like the big kind of moment that ends this episode you know yeah and i think that's exactly where we're starting right is yeah. uh at least with one of these conversations between jamie and Tyrion, right yeah so listen um, you know, this is a talk amongst brothers and, you know, the two of them are, uh, sort of, you know, I would say, uh, disillusioned with the whole entire affair. Right. So Tyrion's coming straight at, at, uh, you know, Jamie, it's like, Hey, listen, you know, it's like, you know, he even says like, you're sleeping with your own sister, all this stuff to sort of jab at him. And Jamie reminds him, it's like, dude, I'm like your only friend right now. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, so I think the fact is, um, you know, they're just really having at it. They're both, uh, dismayed, uh, really at rock bottom at this point. And if this is sort of the real conversation, like, you know, what are you, what are you going to do? You call for trial by combat. Uh, clearly, you know, you don't know what to do. Like, uh, Tyrion can't fight it for himself. Uh, and so he does put out there like, Hey, Jamie, this is your time to step up and, yeah. uh, you know, be a part of, uh, th <laughs> this trial. Well, I think and it's like the ultimate, like kind of merging of everything that's kind of been built between the two of them throughout the season. You know, we had a little, we had to spend a little bit of time with each other in the first season before they kind of went off and diverged and went on their own journeys for the next couple of seasons. But this is really the first time that we've had them back together since season one. And you've kind of been seeing this, like kind of push, pull back and forth. They, their love for each other, but also their kind of respective understanding of their positions in the family. And I feel like that's all like coming out and coming to a head right here where jamie's admonishing is like you couldn't shut your mouth do what you were told and you would have lived he's like first of all shutting my mouth and doing what i was told a you know that's not my style b what would it have gotten me you know okay i'm freezing my ass off of the wall instead of like actually you know walking out of this with my with my life at least i'm walking out with my dignity also kind of calling jamie out a little bit it's like look you're the golden boy. You've never understood what it's like to be, you know, to be the, the, the second child, for lack of a better word, you know, the lesser one, you know, which is something that, again, not to make this a little bit about me personally, but like, you know, it gives you a little bit of a sort of peek into my life as well. Like I could definitely relate to a few of those instances that Terry was talking about, but they're both kind of calling each other out. It's like, yeah, you're, he's like, you're kind of an idiot for still believing that this would actually work. And Jamie's like, well, you're an idiot for not going along with the process, but you, it's like, you had a way out and you shut the door right in its face, you know? So they're both kind of like calling into question, but they're both kind of like understanding. They're both kind of they're accepting their positions right now. You know, Tyrion has always had to fight for everything he's had. And Jamie kind of like, again, is comfortable in, in, in his stance while also trying to do what he can, but understanding that there's limitations to what he's able to do. You know, and I just thought that that was really, really well presented in that scene. Yeah. And, and this scene, you know, it serves as 100 percent like recapping what has happened up until this point, because, you know, most television shows, you basically want every episode to be as self-contained as possible. You know, I understand like in the age of binging, you do have like cliffhangers and then you sort of continue on and, and you try to get people to watch the next episode. But like still, a lot of it is self-contained. Like if you basically just kind of walked into the room and your roommates or whatever were streaming something, hey, you know, listen, you could pick up right there and then 
and understand the plot and continue. So that's what this scene really serves. The two of them are hashing what has just taken place, everything that led up to this moment for the most part. It's a nice little summary scene. And at the end of the day, it does progress their relationship forward, but it gives us a little bit of recap of what you might've missed in previous episodes. So I think it's brilliant in terms of of just how it's executed in terms of the script. Uh, The second thing I will say is, you know, Jamie points out that he couldn't even beat a stable boy and and that's what his training has proved. And it's like, damn, you know, like Tyrion, you know, he's, what is he going to do? He's not going to do anything um, against anybody really because he's just, outgunned, so to speak, in terms of the traditional fighting world uh, that this is. And Jamie, you know, he's mutilated. He doesn't have his left hand anymore. So uh, he's sort of in the same boat now. The two of them are, believe it or not, on the same level, whether they believe it or not. So, right. Or, yeah. you know, re- realize it or not. And the other thing, too, that I love about this episode is very similar to Sakharov's episode that he directed in season three of The Climb, right? Where he kind of like had all these other storylines that were kind of centered around like this one, like kind of ascending thing, right? Where he kind of like builds it and uses that to like center attention, you know, obviously where everything that happens in that episode is, surra- is centered around John and the Wildlings climbing up the wall. He does something kind of similar in this, where everything that happens in this episode is kind of centered around each of the conversations that Tyrion has while in the jail cell. You know, obviously, you know, Jamie and Tyrion kind of kicks off the episode, then Jamie and Bron- then Bronn and Tyrion happens like right around the middle, and then obviously we have Oberyn and Tyrion kind of capping it before obviously the stuff at the Eerie. And I just wanted to point out too that like the only scene that we have of Cersei in this episode that's also used like fantastic reintroduction to the mountain you know this is the third and final actor that we have playing the mountain you know he hasn't been on screen since i think like season two we you know we have a new actor but the final actor you see you know hap thor julius bjornson or as he's known just hap thor eight feet tall he comes in this guy doesn't need to act he, he even knows he's like cersei's like trying to throw all these niceties out of him. he's just like randomly gutting all these random guys it's just a great visual reintroduction of this character <laughs> what a force he is. yeah it's <laughs> listen this is uh kind of comedic uh, kind of violent. It's it's everything that you want in terms of making the mountain such a vicious killer. Basically, it's it's. <laughs> I hate to say it, it's sort of like that old school, you know, '90s professional wrestler Goldberg. It's like who's next, and they're just running in there with weapons and getting disemboweled, and uh, totally the mountains on a winning streak, and they're just kind of counting up his, uh, you know, wins all the way up to like right. you know, hundred, hundred and two, hundred and whatever, uh, right there in the middle of that courtyard, and it's Cersei is very confident that the mountain is going to beat. Tyrion are whoever he can find as his champion. Well, and, and it's said in the next scene too. When when Bronn comes to see him, it's like you you're, you're an idiot if you think that I'm actually going to fight the mountain for you. Where, where Bronn comes in and again, just this could have been so cut and dry, so easy. He comes in wearing this gorgeous looking silk. He's like, yeah, I'm not fighting for you. Your sister's basically paid me off. It could have been just that. Could have been just that. And then he just, just walked out. But the way that they build up to it, and the way that it kind of ends, you know, because again. I'm also going to get into, you know, once again, all the scenes that are in this episode of, what, you know, where they pull from the books and where they deviate a bit. Because I think this episode, it's between this episode and the next couple where they probably like some of the last moments that are like directly pulled from Storm of Swords, but also like a couple of slight adjustments to them. But this scene is almost like beat for beat, word for word, exactly how it happens. I will say this scene is tarnished a little bit because obviously we, we still get Braun for the next four seasons after this season and to much, I think, more diminishing effect. But this scene is really powerful and it's really, you know, heartfelt. You know, especially considering that this was a relationship that started off just based on money and adaptation and, you know, all the way back in season one where we were still being introduced to these characters and kind of like getting to know them. And it kind of, I feel like, builds up a point that you brought up last episode where 
when you know when all of the you know the the people who are testifying against Tyrion bring up all those moments that we love, but they're kind of throwing it back at him, but also it's kind of throwing it back at us, the audience. You're kind of seeing that as well, where the whole time you're like, yeah, you know, Tyrion's always gonna have Bronn to fall back on. He's always gonna be Tyrion's ride or die. And this is the moment that shows now. No, that's not the case. Tyrion is just as susceptible and, vul and vulnerable, you know, because unfortunately Cersei got to Bronn in a way that she was not able to through Pod. And unlike Pod, Bronn stands to benefit only tremendously by taking Cersei's offer to wed Lala Stokeworth rather than fighting the mountain for Tyrion. And he again points out, it's like, yeah, you once told me that if anybody ever tried to buy me out from you, you would be able to double them. Well, this is the one instance where you can't because you've got... Well, <laughs> And that's the greatest part about uh, Tyrion's right. answer is like, well, what do you want? Two wives or two castles? <laughs> you know, and like, Bronn's just like, well, Bronn's you know. Like, that's not the point. <laughs> uh, I think it's uh, it's definitely a, a fantastic scene because, you know, Bronn, at the end of the day, he knows he can't really defeat the mountain. And it's not even worth him trying because right. he's a sellsword that came from nothing. And now he has this sort of like uh, hand on the bottom of the ladder. He's able to climb into a little bit of wealth. And, you know, this pot has been sweetened. Basically it's clear that you get to marry the younger daughter, um, you know, and then the older daughter will, will accidentally meet some fate and you'll inherit a castle. And Tyrion More or less. Like, oh, the anti two where it's like, she's, or, or Bronn is like, um, you know, Tyrion's like, she's still the heir and is older. And she's like, yeah, but she's 40 and barren. It's like, come on, guy. Yeah, and, and like, you know, people, you know, have accidents all the time and they fall off their pretty horses, exactly. you know, all, all that type of stuff. Like, it, it's how it's kind of comes out in the conversation is really well written. And I think it's, one of those things, like, you know, Tyrion says, like, hey, have you forgotten the laws of inheritance? And that's when Bronn kind of confronts that a scheme is already in place uh, for that to not really be an issue. And, you know, it's Bronn is showing that he's playing the game, that he is the same person that he was beforehand, but obviously has learned uh, from his time working with Tyrion. And that, you know, here's a, a unwinnable challenge that Bronn could you know, for the sake of friendship, be a part of. But Braun brings up the ultimate point. Like, when's the last time you risked your life for me? Yeah. And, you know, that's ultimately the question. throw friendship into it as well. Exactly. So, like, you know, Tyrion can't really ask him to risk his life on his behalf if he was never willing to risk it for Braun. Right. And I think, you know, that's part of the relationship. That was sort of the unspoken agreement that the two of them had is that it was mutually beneficial. Uh, the two of them were sort of, you know, of the same mind of, you know, schemery. And I think it's one of those things where this is that inevitable right. uh, path that you cannot go down. And so Braun has to basically whether he wants to really or not, he has to say, you know what, Tyrion, you're on your own. Right. He's got to put his foot down. And I will say, too, again, like the, the, the goodbye that happens between them where it's like, you know, it's like, I am sorry. It's like, why? It's like you're you're just the same evil bastard that you were when I mentioned the first time. It's what I liked about you in the first place. But you, you can tell that even though they're trying to, like, cover it up with some, like, you know, some sort of, like, uh, you know, notion of nostalgia, you can tell, like, th th this sucks for both of them because Tyrion knows that he's kind of lost one of the last allies he had. And Bronn, even though Bronn is a sellsword and a cutthroat, he knows this, this is tough for him, but he knows he has to look out for himself at the end of the day. But you can tell that he feels something because he gives Tyrion... He gives him the double tap when he shakes his hand. You know, he puts his hand on top of it, which I thought I thought that was really touching. But I think it's actually really good that you pointed that out because what have you been saying since we started this started this podcast, Pat? What have you been saying since 
day one. If you don't play the Game of Thrones, you're going to wind up dying, which is, I think, the perfect way to surmise how the scene between Tyrion and Oberyn at the end is the perfect thing to lead us into what happens to Oberyn in the next episode once we get to the inevitable it's the total opposite of Bronn. Bronn is operating completely from logic. You know, Jamie, it's a little bit of 50-50. He's like, I would help you if I could, but also I don't have my hand, even though my you're my brother, and it's the mountain, you know, when he says so many words. Bronn is straight up logical. He's like, look, you are an idiot if you think that I'm going to fight that dude for you. And Oberyn straight up comes in, tells him this heartwarming story about how he saw him when he was a baby. He's like, heartwarming. I don't think that's heartwarming. Uh, okay. but, heartwarming you know. is the wrong word. Heartwarming <laughs> is the wrong word, choice. But I think you know what I'm trying to say. He's trying to he's trying to make Tyrion like kind of have this understanding that it's like, okay, you're not the only second son in the world. You know, where it's like I grew up, I heard, you know, I went to Castle Rock when I was younger. You know, your sister well, it was all about like meeting him for the first time. Like, right. you know, when Tyrion didn't know uh, you know, he was anything. just a baby, was so baby. how could he know anything? And Oberon, yeah, he tells that great story about how as children he was invited up to meet the new baby, the the monster of Castle right. Rock, which was Tyrion. Thing. Right. And for days, like Cersei basically promised to sneak them in and take a look at the child and you know, with the the big head and the claw and all this other stuff that's uh you know myths are made of. And ultimately finally the day happened when Cersei brought them in and Oberon just sits there and is like, Yeah, sure, his head's a little bit big, hey, his limbs a little small, but like it's just a baby. baby. Yeah. And you then know, Cersei and- drops the ultimate Again, like even, this shows how much of a force she of of a menace that she still is, even in Tyrion's life. Where I feel like Cersei and Tyburn are constantly in this battling out to like who to see they're in this competition to see who can make Tyrion's life more miserable. And it's like one minute it's Tywin and the next she's like, Yeah, and she said is like, Yes, he is a monster. He killed my mother. And you can just see the look on Tyrion's face. It's like, oh my god, like, can I not catch a break? And then he's like, Well, if he's like, um, He's like, uh, well, Cersei's finally going to get what she wants. And he's like, well, what about what I want? He's like, I want justice. He's like, ah, you may have come to the wrong place for that. He's like, I think I've come to the right place, you know? And he's like, I will be your champion. And again, it's it's for all the wrong reasons. He's doing it, again, to avenge. Well, it's for revenge, his, right? Right, you to know, revenge so. against his family honor and everything, you know? And he, But also, it's a little bit of hubris involved, too. He wants, there, there's, a, there's a reason why we saw the sequence with the mountain taking out all those guys. It's because... The mountain has never really had a worthwhile adversary, and Oberyn fancies himself as that. So it's a little bit revenge, but it's also a little bit of hubris involved. And as we see in the next episode, yee, not going to go well for him. Well, it doesn't go well for anybody involved in this, but uh, (laughs) I think the fact is Oberyn, you know, he wants – he's impatient. He's ready to go for it now, and he wants it now. And I think – that's really what gets him. You know, he's not willing to uh, play the long scheme uh, that the Lannisters, you know, Tyrion, that, you know, the, the people that really are successful in this show are willing to do like, you know, he kind of comes in this season. uh, What what is this episode seven so far? So, you know, he's introduced in like episode one uh, and then here it is uh, six episodes later, he's ready to go straight for this uh, duel. The moment has presented itself. So the show does a great job of like, you know, setting it up as like he is sort of vying for his moment, waiting for an opportunity. And this happens to be like a little bit sooner than he expected. But ultimately, who knows what Oberon's true aim is like he, he he's blinded by 
revenge and this might not be necessarily the right moment to step up right. and really enter a one-on-one combat with the mountain. You know, I understand he wants to get it for revenge, but you know, is, is that really what everyone right. else is doing? You got not Joffrey who's poisoned. Yep. You got, um, you know, Catelyn and Rob Stark. They're sort of betrayed at the wedding and, uh, you know, attacked from uh, behind more or less. It's one of those things where like, Basically, having the characters in this world dead to rights is really what wins you the day. Right. And Oberon is just going to waltz in open combat and then just have his uh, revenge. Right. You know, it's that like, seems come on. a little man. one of those too good to be true scenarios. Exactly. Martin, like, Martin loves setting up. It's really not going to go his way, um, you know. Uh, spoiler alert, <laughs> you know. And, and it's one of those, one of those things are, um, you know, in this world, it's just ill-advised to be so brazen. But you know, obviously, Oberon is that confidence. Uh, you know, uh, has confidence. I mean, in his abilities, and he really has that that focus, that anger, that, that need for revenge, that he's going to do it. Like he's a true believer, what he uh, is capable of and he's just going straight for it. And, you know, that makes for great television. Uh, Who knows if it makes for a great personal strategy. Well, we, we, we will see next episode, obviously. Well, we'll, we'll talk more about it next episode, but it's definitely to me an instance of screaming where it's like, this is not setting itself up to be too well. And again, to bring it back to the books, I still cannot get over between the Red Wedding and the end of A Storm of Swords, they had Joffrey's death, Tyrion's trial, the Mountain of the Viper, the Battle of the Wall, all within... The, uh, I'm, I'm done gushing about how they, how well they adapted because it, 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 it's, it still never ceases to amaze me. So we got a couple more scenes to cut to before we get to the, kind of the big ending, uh, you know, set piece of this episode and kind of the big revelation. So Castle Black, we check in quick with them. The Night's Watch members return. They're greeted, you know, by the rest of their brothers. You know, they had a successful... And of course, Thorne is already back to cause trouble. He's like... John, lock your direwolf in the cages or I'll have Hob kill it. And John's just like, come on, man. I, I cannot get a break. But right yeah, after. Well, direwolves too, right? You know, all yeah. the uh, guys at you know, Castle Black, Castle Black could so probably enjoy some extra exactly. meaties too. fed for a while. But yeah, so they recapped. They're like, yeah. So, you know, even we had this little detour with the, um, you know, with the wildlings uh, to, w- with taking care of the mutineers two episodes ago. But it's like, we got to refocus again. Man's is on his way here. We saw their fires. They'll be here before the full moon. Once again, John butting heads with Sir Alistair as far as what's best to do here, where it's really interesting kind of looking back on this in hindsight, because even though Sir Alistair is still letting his hatred of John overpower any other rational-minded decision, at the end of the day, I think the interesting thing that's established here between the two of them throughout the course of this season, at least, before we get to the next two, obviously, you know, until Sir Alistair's death, is that they're both still fighting for the same thing. They both want what's best for the wall and for the Night's Watch. They just, they cannot get past their hatred for each other, you know, which is where obviously going all the way back to season one, Sir Alistair thinks that John is, you know, is way too privileged having grown up in a castle, you know, and now deaning himself as where versus Sir Alistair was probably more so, you know, grew up a lowborn commoner, probably had to work for his way of everything. And he probably sees John still as this spoiled highborn lord versus John, always been an outsider, feels like he never got respect, even in his own family. Just kind of come here looking for his calling. And here's this guy who just will not give him a break at all, simply for the fact that he grew up, you know, slightly more better off than him, you know? And it really sucks because I feel like it's one of those scenarios and relationships where if the two could just get past their butt-headed natures, they could really do some good, but they just cannot. 
where Sir Alistair is refuting every point that John brings up to the point where he's even willing to endanger the rest of the Night's Watch when he brings up the idea that's like, yeah, we should seal the tunnel and he, because they won't, because they're not going <laughs> to yeah, stop the so, giants. So, Dom, I, I think... This is a great moment because it's it's essentially John makes this point. You know, we got to seal the tunnels. I've seen the giants. Oh, there's like four feet of you know steel, and it's like no, it doesn't matter. Giants are giants. They're gonna come yep. through that, and they're gonna attack us. They're gonna get us. And the fact is, we need to flood the tunnels. We need to freeze them over. We need to stop them completely. And it's like, well, how are we gonna range north? Well, we're not. Because not. we well, why we, we need to because, defend the, the wall the too, at all costs. They, they should have brought up, and I don't know because again, John can really not bring up anything to Alistair without him refuting it with something that's based purely on his hatred for it. Which is it's like, yeah, okay, so forget the wild legs, but we still have the White Walkers. Now it's really interesting, obviously, this decision in hindsight because in high, you know, seeing this decision in hindsight because right now John is only thinking about the pending wildling attack. But obviously, once they survive the war, he actually realizes the decision. Strauser may have been right as far as, um, you know, keeping the wall unplugged as far as bringing the rest of the wildlings south rather than leaving them north to be, you know, meat for the White Walker army. You know, I just find it really interesting that they're not that, that John's not thinking about that in long term now. But I guess in the sense of like they, they only have this wildling threat to deal with. Right yeah, now, well, so. well, here's the thing that's weird about it is like if they did freeze all the tunnels and prevent the wildlings from coming in. Would the wildlings really have the ability to, you know, blow a hole in the wall or something, right. you know, something to really allow the White Walkers to follow them through? True. You true. know, uh, well, they we'll get into that once we get into the cockamaminess of the last two seasons. Yeah. In the, in the course of the show, they never really set up how, how the White gonna Walkers the are going to get past the wall. Right. So, you know, ultimately it ends up being. Uh, one of Daenerys's dragons, you right. know, gets uh, turned on dead, and and that's what blasts through the wall. Right. Uh, but in in essence of like knowing the whole entire series, uh, they could have just flooded the tunnels and called it a day. They would never have had to deal with the White Walkers. Right. So it's it's very interesting to sort of see how the show progresses after this point, and realize like, well, John was completely right. They could have just kind of right. You know, froze those tunnels, kept the white uh, wildlings uh, over there, give them to the army of the dead, and the army of the dead would just sort of like hang out. Uh, you know, never, never able to get past the wall. Uh, you know, obviously something probably would have came up, but like right. uh, in storytelling, it, it wasn't inevitable uh, how the White Walkers were going to get past that wall. Right, um, and obviously you know, we're so going based off the comparison to the books. Obviously, you know the the hints being that the horn, because obviously you know they 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 reference it a couple times in the show, but they never really explicitly state that it's the Horn of Joramon, where in the books, Egret informs John uh, they're under this notion that Mantis found this ancient horn called the Horn of Joramon, which is this horn that supposedly when it's blown would wake up the giants and allow them to tear down the wall. I don't think exactly how that would work specifically, but in the books, Melisandre burns this horn, but it's also strongly, uh, you know, once Stannis and them, you know, defeat the wildlings and they, and they, and they capture Mantis, the wildlings, it's strongly hinted that, however, this is not the real horn and that the real horn is being held somewhere in Old Town, which is famously where Euron Greyjoy is going to invade in the books, because in the books, it's being strongly set up that Euron is going to either form some sort of alliance or potentially take over the, the White Walkers as the new uh, Night King. I don't know. Well, I'll save that for a later day once I bring on Eli onto the podcast and he can break it down because he's dove into every theory uh, as far as where the books are going to go and some really potentially interesting routes that they could go. But that's essentially like kind of what it seemed like they were setting up for in the books. And obviously we see that the show goes in a drastically different direction direction there. But um no, a hundred percent. And, and, you know, listen, I, I, we went off on a tangent and it's, it's definitely my fault, but, uh, 
to end what happens uh, at, at, you know, uh, basically North at the wall, we basically just have to say that it's like Alistair takes the moment to say, hey, you're a steward. Yeah. And who's responsible for the just Yeah, who's re, who's responsible I, for I the, the tunnels? Look the, I love the look that Bowen Marsh gives him too where he's like, uh 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 he's like current leader, could be potential future leader, and, and like you just see the look on his face. That just yeah. that well that, that's when he when he says the builders are in charge and he's like right. chief builder, do you agree with this assessment? And you know, it's it's the politics that basically leads him right. to say no. Right. Uh, so you know, John is sort of dismissed at this point. And deflated and, you know, essentially they're going to move forward with, uh, you know, just defending themselves by, you know, that, you know, four feet of steel or whatever, whatever the measure is. Right. And that's it. They're not going to listen to John. They're going to kind of continue forward with what they've always done. And, you know, hey, we'll see. We'll see what happens in the next couple episodes. Indeed, we shall. Also, we do. We cut in. We we do quick check in with Dragonstone. Obviously, this is the last time we, that we check in with the storyline before, uh, you know, we see them again in the finale. You know, things are pretty much wrapping up on Dragonstone. They're beginning their march, their north, their expedition north of the wall. Stannis and Davos have sailed yeah, back from this, this is the scene where Melisandre asked for some bubbles for her bath. And, uh, <laughs> so what is it? Salise? Salise, uh, yeah. Just every, almost hands every are both poison. Yeah, every single scene is literally just like Melisandre just showing off her form. And it's like, we get it. Karis Van Hooten, you're gorgeous. We you don't yeah, need it, to flood it every <laughs> single chance. We get it. it. It's a very short scene. And yeah. it's it's basically uh, just a, a strange excuse to, uh, you know, or whatever. Or it's more, a, more, more Lord pretty, of Light jargon, whatever. It's basically, I have a yeah, pretty blunt here. excuse to get her into the bubble bath. Get, but, but also, it's, it's, it's there to set up the fact that Shireen needs to come to the wall because this is what they're building toward. And again, like... If this is the point where they'd started etching out the idea for Stannis' ultimate defeat next season, uh, we'll, we'll get to that when we cover it in season five because there's so many. That for as much things as I love that they changed and added from the books in season four, season five to me is where it all goes out the window and starts to go downhill. Like I'm still not a fan of a lot of the changes that they made, mostly because I just don't feel it like that they add any benefit to the story. But this scene, the way the results, like, oh, yeah, Shireen's going to come north with us. You know, whatever the case may be, the Lord of Light's got a mission for her. And I'm just in hindsight. I'm like, oh, so that's what this scene is for. Okay. You know, it's another one of those things that they're just like, okay, we have this super cool, crazy thing coming later on. But we have this one scene that we got to throw away. And it gets by by the fact that it's incredibly well written the way that the same as the rest of the scenes are in this episode. But this is the one scene where I'm No, 100%. Like, uh, I, I, I think most of the characters are represented in this episode. Uh, they have, like, moments that sort of move their stories ahead. They're well-written for the most part. And, you know, listen, I'm joking because it, it literally is just sort of uh, a casual bath scene, you know, but, like, you know, it's... I don't know what there is to say. Much more yeah. to it's say really about not it. Much. Like, she takes a bath, like, some bubbles, and, th- and then she's yeah, like, oh, well, yeah, like, here's the, you know, here's the poisons, and let right. me explain one of them to you. I guess right. I was, I, 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 I totally forgot by now what, which one, uh, what I, she was I, explaining. You know what's so confusing but, about this scene to me is the fact that obviously Celise we know is like so devout to the Lord of Light. You know, she's all about that. She admi- openly admonishes her daughter. She's Super cool with the fact that, you know, Melisandre, I think she figures out pretty quick as she starts dropping the hints last season in season three about Melisandre potentially sacrificing Shireen, saying that she's impure and all that. And obviously until like the final breaking up point when, you know, the deed is actually done. But the crazy thing is that she doesn't want Shireen to come north with them. 
So I find that really interesting where this is a mother who has been super harsh and not at all really like motherly towards her daughter, potentially for whatever, you know, potentially for some form of mental instability, potentially for losing all of her sons. You know, she did show that she keeps all of their sons in jars, which is really weird. But in a strange way, like showing some sympathy and caring for her daughter. I don't know. It's just like, like I said, it's just it's really one of those moments. It's really, really strange in hindsight. But also it's like it's one of those things that makes me question, like, were the seeds there then or was it just kind of a thing of where it's like, OK, they're just directing you in the moment. And we're not really sure where this is going to go. It's, it's, again, it's one of those things where it's like, ugh. I just I don't know how well thought out this was ahead of time, you know, and it kind of makes the scene worse in hindsight, unfortunately. Um, you know, I, I kind of go to the uh, fact that they they wrote this scene. It's for the moment. You know, I, I you know, it really what it is, is in future episodes, if it seems like they planted a seed, uh, they were able to sort of look back at what they did and then kind of mold it to the way they want to be. Like, I would truly believe that. I don't, I don't think they would have like sort of this, uh, you know, whole entire series planned out where every single time they make a scene, it's, it's for a reason. Uh, I think they just really know their characters they write good scenes and they always leave themselves the ability to build upon what they've done in the past. And yeah. so I, I think it's just really, uh, they leave themselves open-ended enough to, to really, uh, pivot and make those moves properly. Yes. Um, you know, yeah, I don't know. It, it's, there's not much more to say about Dragonstone. It's kind of yeah, like a simmer kind of on a, the back burner. Yep. Uh, I think really where it's popping and uh, where I would like to take this conversation next River is Land. Marine. Oh, Marine. No, no. Okay, okay, okay. You want to do the River Ends, but no, 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 no. I, I'll, I'll, I'll do Marine. Marine. No, Marine works because Marine actually happens next. I was going to switch that anyways. But yeah, Marine, great scene. Great fucking scene. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know I've been trying to pull back on the F-bombs, but hey, Danny and Dario finally get it on. Like they have been building this all season, you know, ever since they recast Ed Scrine with Michelle Houston, and man, things are simmering in Marine right now. Yeah, well, you know, Daenerys is really going to take advantage of Dario and uh, <laughs> his, is. his uh, basically assets, I guess. Uh, yeah. You know, so it's the a, main thing is... devotion to her. Um, yeah, 100%. And, you know, I, I here's the thing is, like, um, it's something where she's the queen... Um, you know, and, and she basically gets what she wants. And I think at this moment, it's like, well, why not? You know, Dario is this uh, sort of uh, manservant that I can, you know, control. And, uh, you know, she's totally into um, using him for every whim that she uh, needs. And that includes, uh, you know, the, uh, self-pleasure, so to speak, or, you know, just pleasure right. in general. Even queen um, got to get one off. Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, with all that said and done, it's like the scene that I found very interesting is when Jora comes in and sort of, you know, asks her about, hey, what's going on? Like, you can't really trust Dario and, and all this stuff. And uh, she makes it clear that, you know, to, to at least Jaro that, uh, hey, you know, listen, it's like, I don't really trust him, but like, you know, I'm going to use him how I see fit. And uh, this is my plan. And Jorah, you know, doesn't like the fact that, you know, they're going back to Young Kai uh, to kill the masters because it's like, you know, p the slaves have only known brutality. And if you continue showing them brutality, that's all they're going to ever know. And so you got to change things up. You got to, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, rule differently. Uh, you know, so like yeah, he kind of he kind of goes on and, and has a good point. Um, but, you know, 
he wins her over and she's basically says, Hey, you know, uh, I forgot the guy, the son of the, the one master. That, oh, he's uh, Dar Zolorak. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, she's going to send him with Dario and, you know, he can make the appeal to the other masters like, right. Hey, you know, this is what's going to happen. You're either going to get slaughtered or you can live under, you know, Daenerys's new rule. And, and that's, that's a better chance than they were going to get if Jara didn't actually speak to her. For sure. And like the one thing I will say is again, like the this scene like kind of is showing that like where Jora again has been largely on the back burner since really last season and kind of to reemphasize Jora's importance to her, you know, obviously before the inevitable reveal that we get next episode. But I think the for me, the bigger takeaway from this scene, much more so than anything going on with Jora and Dario, which again, I'm 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 I feel like Jora's in a competition to see like what more like, you know, disgusted and just dis and ultimately like dismayed at Dario like the face that he makes last season when Danny immediately asks how Dario is after they take Yunkai for her or the face that he makes this episode where he walks in and sees Dario walking out with his shirt unbuttoned it's like both facial expressions are absolutely priceless but um the one thing that I will say is um for me how even though Danny is still taking Jorah's advice, and rightfully so, where Jorah still is advising her probably the best and the smartest, where she's like, uh, you know, how do I excuse evil men? And she's like, if, she's like, um, you know, I was a slaver, and if Ned Stark had done what you did, I wouldn't be here. So what you want to do to do to the masters, I wouldn't be here serving you. But she's still very black and white. She's still very is like, okay, I'm going to send people that speak more so your language, but you're still going to do what I say or die. And there's still really that very black and white, very harsh, left, far right or far left. There's really no middle ground, no compromise. And, and, and that right there is I'm like, okay, you can coat it in sugar all you want, but you're still kind of offering them the same choice that they had before. So that to me was the much bigger takeaway where it's like, okay, this season, this is the season where she's kind of out of her conquest phase and fully into a ruling phase. The seeds are really being laid here for the Mad Queen to start, you know, before obviously we get into the next couple seasons with the Sons of the Harpy and everything going on with them. So just more more interesting observations that I make kind of going forward. Then we cut to the Riverlands. And oh, man, this stuff to me is like the meat and potatoes of this episode before we get into the final scene. Like, I love yeah, everything yeah. that's happening here. Listen, uh, you know, it's basically let's save the uh, stories of the two sisters, the two Stark sisters. Uh, for the end of uh, of this recap, because uh, man, these sequences are amazing, amazing. amazing. Uh, you know, so you know, basically, Arya and the Hound just traveling around. You know, this is the 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 buddy cop of the season. You know, storyline. Uh, the two it of them works. just getting to know each other. Uh, two different backgrounds. You know, they don't know if they can trust each other. And yeah, uh, this is the moment where you know we find out that. You know, she's learning. She's not just, uh, you know, Arya is not just some uh, random, you know, young woman that uh, uh, doesn't know anything. She, you know, our young girl, I should say, she's, you know, becoming and progressing and becoming a young woman, um, you know, specifically uh, trained in, you know, warfare and right. warfare uh, and combat and understanding like the means of yeah. like, you know, just human life and death, unfortunately. And I think it's perfectly captured in that scene where they go and see that farmer with one of the most. I'd say like one of the, one of the best written scenes on this entire show where they just see this poor farmer whose farm has been completely yeah, ransacked. I, I totally forgot about this scene. I, I to be honest with you, it, it, I was watching this and this was like uh, just pure gold. I, I actually, you know, went into the browser and pulled the scene back and watched it a second yeah. time uh, just because like it was well written, uh, it was well acted, like everything about it was perfection. 
And I'll tell you, too, what else, like, made the scene ring true for me besides just the brilliant writing and the performances is kind of what it meant, where it, we're, we're kind of wrapping up this phase of the storyline. You know, obviously, we had the scene a couple episodes ago with the farmer where, where the farmer tried to hire the hound, and the hound ended up just robbing him and taking his gold and leaving. And he's like, yeah, they'll be dead by nightfall. And like, you can see it's like it, it's this thing that ultimately is so frequently happens in real life which is again that the higher ups the 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 the, mid, the lower class and the and the and the middle class get ultimately destroyed and their lives completely upended by the higher ups and once the higher ups are done they kind of just go back to doing what they do you know when you have all these people that are kind of just left stuck to fend with the consequences and that's kind of what this guy is saying where it's just like you know things used to be fair you know things used to be honest trade now who even who even knows what that is you know and it, it's just it's ultimately sad and kind of unfulfilled where we started this season with Arya and the Hound as they were kind of trekking across you know the wreckage of the Stark Lannister war and they, they, uh, we have these little brief moments to kind of clue you in and see yeah these are the people who are really affected by this conflict not any of these high lords not any of these characters you know and then and, and the fact that you have these characters characters like Arya and the Hound, and they're the ones that are kind of, you know, seeing them and, and kind of, like, checking us in and cluing us in as to how things really work. It's, it's masterfully done. This is the stuff that this is the, these are the moments to me where Benioff and Weiss truly, truly do shine, and it's the fact that we get away from these moments that I think are also a large contributor to as to why the last couple seasons do not work as well as these first couple. Yeah, hey, listen, like, um, <laughs> my favorite line that the farmer says is, do you have some water? Dying is, Dying is thirsty hard work. work. Yeah, thirsty, thirsty work. work. <laughs> oh man, just but then he's like, and, I wish it was wine, and the hound's like, me too. Before stabbing yeah, him. like every line is like built in there. It's like, hey, you know, it's like, what happened here? Oh, the robbers came. They they stabbed me. It's like, well, what what are you doing? Like, you know. Oh, he just kind of brushes them. He completes their sentence. He's like, "Oh, I've thought about it." You know, <laughs> it's it's just like, "Well, why why are you fighting death? Like, why are you staying alive?" And he's like, "You know, probably out of habit." You know, it's just like living's kind of good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like like he's just. Again, it's it's very like it's very pr it's problematic of life. this guy, right? But it's it's true to real life. It's resounding. Like how many people in our lives that we know of and both don't know of that are probably in this exact same scenario where it's like, yeah, it's just a habit at this point, you know? And like and that stuff, I'm like, yeah, that's the stuff that rings true. That's the stuff to me that really makes this show special. Unfortunately, it's upended by an almost farcical like attack sequence where Biter, where we get the two morons from season two who were locked in the cage with Jack and come back. The one. Bites the hound's neck off. The hound somehow pulls a wrestling move, like snaps his neck while he's flipping him over. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, you, you you jumped ahead because like uh, the hound does have mercy on this guy and stabs him in the heart, and that's when the guy jumps on his back. Right. Uh, and he does basically, um, you know, one of the meanest stone cold stunners I've ever seen that just snaps his neck. I knew you um, would know the move. <laughs> no, I'm just, you know, hey, listen, it's. Uh, you know, 90s pop culture. So, <laughs> you know, so uh, basically he's bitten. The hound turns around. And he's like, what the hell? You know, and then he sees the he sees the, the other guy. guy and it's like, dude, <laughs> like, why would you make this decision? You just it's thought like, you why? would come across the two of us. And 
uh, the guy explains like you're the hound, you know. It's like we're gonna, you know, we're make gonna a get bank. like the bounty on you. And he's <laughs> yeah, like, I guess, exactly. that's what I guess that's what happens when you say to f the king. And he's like, that king's dead. He's like, I'm just collecting the bounty on you. You're this bounty for killing the ladders of soldiers. And they're like, oh man. And then Arya ends up killing him in a great sequence where he's like, is he on your stupid? Oh, because Arya recognizes him and he's like, is he on your stupid list? And he's like, no, I don't know his name. And then he gets his name and she's like, thank you. And then she stabs him. Great scene, like a great kind yeah, of like yeah. everything. Everything, Everything about, about it is masterful. Right. Then we have the next scene with them where they're sitting down. And they, again, they, they have a great little heart to heart right there. It, it's absolutely masterful where she's offering to like, you know, help him. And she's like, no fire. And he's like, kind of like really opens up to her. And he's just like, look, you know, your brother made you that sword. He's like, well, my brother gave me this. He's like, uh, and he kind of like explains it. He's just like, it was, he's like, yeah, you pushed me to the fire. You know, it wasn't even the fire that hurt or the, or, or the, um, what's it called? Or, or the pain or the smell. He's like, it was just the fact that it was my yeah. brother. Well, he, the- he said, yeah, he said, um, it, the pain was awful, but not, you know, uh, you know, it, it was what it was. The smell was worse. And the thing that really hurt was that it was his brother who did it. Right. And he goes on to tell this whole story about how his father, uh, defended the mountain, his older brother, and how he just lied to everybody about uh, right. the hounds betting right. catching on fire, and that's the reason why he's scarred and all this stuff. And you know, it, it really he brings up the point, like, "Hey, Arya, like, you know, you you felt like you've been isolated, like you've been alone. Like, try my life. Yeah, you know, like he he is actually has, um, you know, really." Uh, the bottom of the barrel in terms of family and, you know, just like, you know, he's had to endure. He's basically hardened because of that. And, you know, look at the type of man he is. Uh, And that's what this little journey is about is kind of like Arya as this sort of, you know, uh, you know, young sort of uh, Lord, you know, or at least uh, daughter of a Lord, and it's about her preconceptions about humanity. And, you know, it's like she wants to be a warrior. And, well, you know, he knows that it takes uh, a certain coldness, uh, a certain cruelty, uh, you know, a certain cutthroatness. And, you know, this is where he's able to sort of, you know, over the course of this journey, uh, basically paint the picture of what it will take Arya to get to the point where she could be a warrior just like him, right? Uh, just like Ned Stark, right? All uh, the good like, and the bad that comes with that. Yeah, exactly. Just with like any of the other knights that are in the realm, uh, if this is the path you want to go on, uh, there is a certain uh, you know uh, cruelty uh, that you will have to endure and basically uh, just face it. Like yeah. you, you have to accept it, so to speak. Right. Yeah. It, it, again, it's, it shows that like, again, she, she kind of grew up in a strange way again, having the same aspirations of, I uh, stands up, but for the opposite, you know, of being a knight, being a warrior, defending the innocent, protecting those, uh, you know, who, who can't defend themselves. And as she's getting older and she's spending all this time out there in the wilderness, you know, with the commoners, so she's learning like what being a warrior, you know, actually means that she's realizing it's probably a lot more isolating and a lot more lonely and a lot more just harsh than like she probably ever realized beforehand as, as she spends this time with the hound the uh, the flip side of that coin however is brienne where we'll we check in briefly with this episode and this is another sequence where it, it's similar in, in isolation in of itself it's another incredible sequence 
but I have a slight problem with it, both based off where it goes with Brienne, specifically with the next season, and also kind of where it goes in the books, which is where. So obviously we have this brief check-in with Brienne and Podrick. They're eating at this inn. Uh, you know, this ironically enough, again, just a matter of convenience, the same inn where Hot Pie is. You know, they run into Hot Pie. Hot Pie sits down with them after they compliment the kidney <laughs> well, pie. Well, yeah, it's the kidney pie. Is, oh, my God. The pie. It's great. They go back outside, and, and Pod is like, like, she's like, you know, the Lannisters kind of control this territory. We probably shouldn't be, like, just asking openly about Sansa. And Hot Pie comes out and kind of clues them in as to everything that's going on. She's like, you know, with Arya and where they went, they're kind of able to piece everything together. They're like, oh, okay. So yeah, well, the thing that I think is – the thing that's awesome about this scene – is Hot Pie hands over another baked good yes. and says, hey, you know, uh, it turned out better this time. Can you make right. sure Arya gets it? And Brienne just unfolds it and it's, you know, a dire wolf uh, bread uh, once again and it looks perfect. And, you know, I think that's, you know, really heartwarming with this sequence is that, uh, you know, Hot Pie, even though he's found the life for himself, uh, you know, it might be kind of a hard life, but he will, you know, survive. He'll have a place. He basically still, you know, uh, thinks of his friend, um, you know, that's out there that's still, you know, right. going down this path who has a longer journey than he did uh, to get where she belongs. And, you know, it, it's it's definitely on that end heartwarming. Uh, but it's also like open ended because, you know, Podrick has said like, Hey, we shouldn't really be talking to people. We shouldn't really be open about this. Um, and you know, it's, it's serendipitous, right? You know, Brienne has, you know, really gotten some information just by being so blunt, doing something that, you know, Podrick's right about. She shouldn't be saying that. Right. Uh, but because, you know, she didn't think about it and because she just sort of blurted it out there, uh, this really good serendipitous happenstance moment, came about and really uh, gives them something to uh, really uh, enjoy, you know, about their journey. It's, well, it's the, like the scene is kind of the flip of the Aria Hound sequence that we were just talking about, where the Aria Hound sequence is all about how, you know, kind of being a warrior uh, is kind of lonely and isolating and harsh, and you kind of have to look out for and defend for really yourself first and foremost just to survive. Where is we have Brienne, you know, she's wearing the fancy armor. She's, you know, acting like, you know, she's presenting herself like a knight. She's kind of like, you know, being inspiring to all the commoners and she's finding that she's getting exactly what she wants by being truthful and being honest and everything. So it's as, and so that parallel here, there is really interesting. And I, of course, the hot pies, you know, the kind of the, the, the wholesome moment at the end is really, really touching. Here's why I have a problem with it, though. And I'll jump to this in a little bit. Where, uh, you know, once we get into season five and what we like I said, and once I start to cover like how season five deviates from the books and why I think that it's detrimental, not necessarily to the direction the show was going in, but just to kind of the story and everything that Martin had kind of intended originally. So in the books, there are never any counters that Brienne has with Hot Pie or anything like with anybody that remotely knows everything. It's only like random rumors and whispers and everything. She doesn't really know where she's going. They end up like kind of south towards Maidenpool and the Stormlands. They end up running into, um, you know, Randall, Tarly, Sam's dad. And the whole thing is that Brienne is never anywhere near any of the Stark girls, right? Like never once. And, she, and it's made perfectly clear that she never really has any shot of, um, what's it called, any shot of finding them. Both A, because she's being misled by every person, and B, because she's in completely geographically the wrong area. She ends up going south instead of north like she does in the show. The other reason being for, again, because they kind of 
are already starting this off in season four versus a lot of the other storylines. They at least wrap up a storm of swords before they shifted to season five, which is where this is the first major deviation where in the books they're setting up Brienne to kind of engineer like kind of like a reunion between Jamie and Lady Stoneheart, who is the resurrected Catelyn Stark in the books that they chose to completely omit and cut from the show versus in the books. They very clearly are still intending Brienne towards her destination of, you know, maintaining her oath, maintaining her vow, and ultimately finding both Stark girls, failing at first, but then kind of succeeding in the long run. And I guess my problem comes from the fact that in hindsight, as far as the show, it's so sloppily done with kind of her meeting up with Sansa. And then Sansa's like, oh no, I don't trust you. And then the whole her waiting and waiting for Sansa to light a candle. And then her coming out of nowhere and saving Sansa. And then her leaving. It's just, I, I have a lot of problems with where they take Brienne over the course of the next two seasons. That the fact that kind of we have all these pieces just kind of conveniently falling into place for her. I don't know. It's one of those things that definitely in hindsight is kind of marred. What should be like a really well-written moment and I think like a really like, touching heartfelt moment in this episode, you know? Uh, I, I think what happens here in season four, like uh, I think they do take it in a decent direction. I think uh, your qualms with what happens to Brienne later is is really they just don't know what to do with that right. character. Like right. they don't know where to fit her in to the world. And uh, to your point about the books is – you know, they, you know, definitely took her in a different direction. Yes, 100%. Um, when they decided, they probably, like, after this season was done, uh, season five, that's when they sort of, like, were deciding whether or not they wanted to have Lady Stoneheart in it. Like, because right. it could have been, like, a surprise. Right. Uh, hey, because we brought her thing, back. Because, because the whole thing is that, at least for, for me, like, if we're still following this point in the books, The Storm of Swords, the ideal point would be to end the season, not with Arya going off, but with the scene at the end of Lady Stoneheart and the Brotherhood hanging more Freymen. That would have been the way to end this season. And when they didn't do that, and I'm like, okay, they could potentially say that as opening for next season. But then when they well, didn't do I, that, you know, five, for me, I think it would have been like the perfect opening for season five because right, right, you it. would have basically just Michael Myers, you know, like yeah, exactly. uh, ho every Halloween movie, right? Uh, they basically just retcon their previous movie, pretty much, and show how he pretty survived, much. right? So the they could the have lady done that at the beginning of the yeah. season, and you would have been like, oh man. And the season's getting uh, absolutely heated and, and, and right and off the, the other bat. Thing, the other purpose that the Lady Stoneheart character to me serves in the books is that by that point, kind of the transition, right? The jumping off between season four and five and also kind of the jumping off between, you know, book three and then obviously, you know, book four and five because those two books take place at the same time is the Lady Stoneheart character to me is kind of like what I think is another problem that I have with the last couple seasons of the show, which is where... They all the where the, the show is and, and the story is ultimately supposed to get more supernatural, but to the point not just with like North of the Wall, right, where we've had the hands of the walkers, but it's where the supernatural is supposed to start to kind of ink its way into all of the different storylines, you know, between Lady Stoneheart and the Riverlands, Euron and his conquests in, uh, you know, towards Old Town and everything. There's hints, obviously, that, like potentially something more supernatural happening with, with the other Greyjoy um, brother that's not at all included in the show, Victarion, as he's on his way to Daenerys in the books, you know? There's a, and obviously everything that's going north of the wall, but there's even crazier stuff going on north of the wall than what we see. And so the... the so the and the decision by Benioff and Weiss to really not incorporate any of those supernatural elements really until like the last two seasons is it's it's really confusing and muddling, you know, essentially to the point where it's like, okay, they were supposed to kind of get more so into this range of, you know, of prophecy and of mysticism and everything and kind of get even more just deconstructive with that. And the fact that they chose to keep it in this like kind of pseudo medieval realm while at the same time continuing with the politics game, but also just upping the spectacle to like crazy amounts, like that, that's another kind of thing that we'll get into obviously once we get into the last season but let's wrap this episode up with yeah i just i just want to say yeah. one thing to your point is yeah. 
you know, from the fact that you're one of the uh, readers of the books and yes. you really enjoy the books a lot, uh, you know, you're you're entering that territory of, right. um, you know, being more in love with the books right. version of the storyline right, uh, than treating these television shows separately. So for sure, uh, for sure. I, I, I do want to say like, it's great to hear the comparison. I, I right. like to, um, you know, understand what I'm missing as being a non book reader. I, I just right. watched the show. I enjoyed the show. Uh, and there's that I know about, um, uh, the whole uh, Lady Stoneheart storyline because I, uh, you know, stumbled upon it on like a Wikipedia page or something like that, uh, and I was just like, "Whoa, what am I missing from yeah. the books?" Oh, it, um, not, it yeah, and so, nuts. yeah, exactly. So I was like expecting a lot of that stuff to, you know, I didn't want to spoil myself, so I only went uh, so far, and I kind of waited for it to show up in the TV show, uh, and it never really did, and I was I was okay with that because you know it's it's. Uh, something I could have, you know, gone, read all the books and, and kind of enjoy this additional storylines. Um, you know, I think really what they were focusing on is keeping this show broadly appealing right. enough uh, for the massive audience that they had. I think they were successful in that. And, you know, I can't really blame them for not uh, taking the show into uh, what could have potentially been more confusing because, you know, as the show went on, right, you know, we got shorter and shorter seasons, uh, you know, everything was really compact and, uh, you know, redesigned for like binging television later right. in, in the last couple of seasons. For sure. So if you had more of those sort of um, magical elements, it would have been a lot more loose ends to tie up and uh, storylines could have been a little less concise. Um, and, you know, things could have gotten a lot more muddled than they ultimately did in the way that the show sort of uh, ends. And, you know, so I, they have to kind of choose their battles. And I think they really focus on what made the show popular, which is just all the backstabbing, all the sort of, you know, scheming and, and whatnot, uh, and basically only allowed a certain amount of the magic to really uh, permeate this world. For and sure. So and, and I get where you're coming from in that sense, but there's really only two points that I have to bring up in order to potentially counter that. One, just, uh, you know, obviously, you know, the, the last two seasons speak for themselves as far as, okay, so they kept the show grounded, but then, you know, we, we still got the last two seasons and, and we saw that that was their conclusion of the story. And it's like, okay, so that that, that kind of spoke for itself. And the other point is, um, you know, kind of just the fact that, you know, as far as like kind of them, you know, breaking more so into the binge mode model, as far as that goes, it, 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 like I said, that that's kind of just that's something that was ultimately just out of the show's control. For like I said, the show happened literally on the precipice between like kind of what I call the peak uh, prestige TV era versus the streaming era, and so as a result of them kind of like having to compact it, I guess my only problem with it is the fact that. The, the, all the, you know the, the books also at that point even though they start to introduce more of the supernatural and magical elements they don't lose sight of the backstabbing if anything the backstabbing gets crazier as time goes on and it's almost like they wanted to get away from that which is kind of interesting but like I said well we'll save that for a later date we'll save that for like once we get into seasons five and six and more of the discussion but yeah, yeah. Um, I'm ready to ask you um, a new question Don yes, so let's, me, let's move away. on to this and ask away does does Winterfell have a moon door I, I don't think so. You know, Winterfell's not you know, built into the side of a cliff. So. Oh, really? Well, yeah. can, I, can I add a moon door just uh, willy-nilly? I, I don't think so. I, I don't think that's how, you know, Winterfell was kind of constructed over thousands of years ago. I, I don't think that's how, like, you know, the, 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 the architects would have originally intended for it. 
Also, I don't know how that would have even worked logistically. Like, oh, what? You just jump out the door and into the dirt? Oh, it could have been like a... Up to the Godswood? Like, it goes through a portal and I shy? Like, what are we talking about here? I'm thinking a hole in the ground with some spikes at the bottom, right? You know, that would probably work. That's not bad. That's not bad. I don't know if it would have the same impact, though. Yeah, just cut to Sansa. Hanging out in a snowy courtyard, rebuilds right. Winterfell in the snow, and then right. here, damn good he, job too of it. Oh yeah. yeah, and she's so humble. It's like, right. Oh, this is what I remember of it. Right. I don't really know if I got it right. And then <laughs> comes like, little, oh man. And then comes this little shit to just flex and is like, ha! Huh, oh, you want to build a snowman? We're gonna we're gonna do exactly what you want. And she's like, look, you asshole like what are, what are you doing and she slaps him like she probably gives the kid the first amount of discipline that he's ever had in this entire yeah, life listen robin like is such a great character in this show <laughs> it's it's just just the the just how like miserable of a young man this this character is supposed to be and just the performance that's given time and time again uh like you just you just feel this anger towards yeah. this this character, and right? Like, and it's so awesome. It's, it's it's almost like you're channeling like the Tyrion Joffrey slap right into that slap again. You're just like, yeah, so exactly. Satisfied. You're like, like yes. Sansa what about the show and making such little shithead characters like that. Yeah, so Robin basically just goes in. He's like, I'm gonna make a moon door, and he knock, knocks over half of Winterfell. And Sansa's like, what are you doing? I'll have to start over. And then it's like, what do you mean what I'm doing? I was just making it better, if anything. And it's like, Sansa just looks at him straight in the face, dead eye, deadpan. You're being an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> like, awesome. and it's, it's awesome. like, no one, no one's ever told him that because right. he's been coddled his whole entire life. And, you know, he continues to throw a tantrum just like Joffrey would. And, Boom! Sansa just goes crazy, and you know does a Tyrion to Robin, uh, you know his face, and slaps him, and um, you know it's one of those things where Littlefinger kind of slowly creeps in from the shadows and says, "Does he know any other way to enter a room at this point? I feel like he's been doing that for so long. I don't think he knows how to do anything, how yeah. to enter a room any any other way." And it's like almost the slow clap, like Littlefinger from. <laughs> Oh, it's great. You know, oh, whatever. It's, awesome. it's, it's, awesome. it's almost that scene if they really had gone for it. Yeah. Uh, but the fact is, opportunity you know, there. Littlefinger basically just says, hey, you know, he probably has deserved discipline for years, but has never gotten it. Uh, this is probably going to be a good thing for him. Oh, but what if Liza finds out? And, you know, Sansa's just really nervous about Robin telling her aunt uh, because Liza has already, like, declared her hatred for Sansa. So I, I think this is a, a very interesting sequence because at the end of the day, Littlefinger is, like, a little bit in uh, seduction mode and right. trying to, um, you know, really... Um, you know, just sort of grow the connection between Sansa and himself. Right. And at the same time, uh, Liza's in the background, sort of looking down in the courtyard and sees uh, when Littlefinger goes in for a kiss. Well, so this is a um, really interesting point, I think, both in the books and in the show, because, again, unlike a lot of the couple previous storylines we were talking about, they absolutely nailed like every single sequence as far as like how they built this up for in the for, for the translation for the books of the show, like completely perfectly adapted. And so what's interesting to me about this sequence and kind of where they take it from here on out in the moment, it's brilliant because 
it's ultimately showing, you know, kind of Littlefinger showing his hand. Like, even though we already knew, because so that, that's a brilliant thing to me about Littlefinger's arc kind of throughout this whole season is that it's the showing of both his motivation and him showing his hand, where we get, obviously, the him reuniting with Lysa and him revealing that he kind of, like, engineered this entire Stark Lannister conflict that we followed for throughout the first three seasons by having Lysa poison John Aaron and then write that letter, you know? And now he's showing his hand to Sansa by revealing both his feelings for her that have kind of carried over from Catelyn and also like his dream of seeing them ruling together on the Iron Throne. Whether he actually means any sort of sincerity towards Sansa or not, that's kind of apropos of the point. But what how that carries over into the next sequence as far as with him and Lysa is the fact that his decision to murder Lysa does not come from any sort of tactical advantage, right? Right? It's kind of apropos of everything that he was saying to Sansa at the beginning of the season, where Sansa's questioning him and his motivations. It's like the Lannisters, they gave you everything. They made you this position of power. Why would you backstab them? And Littlefinger's whole stance has always been, keep your enemies confused, because in this world where you yourself, you know, again, coming from this position of kind of low privilege and always seeing greater aspirations for him, in this world where nobody is going to really take him seriously, again, it's a great point of mockery. You know, his sigil is the mockery bird literally to the point where the other great older houses kind of look down on him if anything he's almost the Saul Goodman of the of Westeros in that sense where he's like yeah in this world everyone is your enemy you know and but in this talk one, about dream casting you know oh, uh, Bo- Bob Odenkirk is Littlefinger Littlefinger yeah, and Jennifer Lawrence is Marjorie. I think we oh, already man. got uh, we're, we're two full, major casting changes that uh, would have changed things for here. sure from from the beginning joke but hey, but it's really interesting because Again, he kills Lysa because his both his use for her has kind of come to an end where he realizes that if he keeps her alive, then he's, he's just going to jeopardize some of his future plans. But also... Yeah, she's a liability. She's, she's a liability, right? But also it's the fact that he's doing this because of his care for Sansa, you know, because she threatened Sansa. Like, he could have had her killed at any point. He could have poisoned her. He could have, like, casually, you know, he could have pushed her out the moon door at any point, but he chooses this specific moment to do it. And, of course, before he does it, he does the one last F.U., of, uh, you know, of, of saying, I've only been in love with one person ever, your sister, before just the push. It's like, it's like twisting the knife before pushing it in further. It's, it's, and then the last shot, just looking up at him is he, it, it's, I think it's amazingly well done, where again, it's like kind of how he perfectly envisions himself and just looking over everything is you just see the ominous shot of her falling, falling, falling. But I don't know, like, what, what's your take on that? Uh, you know, my take is really that. Um, I kind of like the idea that this was a little spur of the moment, but I think right. because it's, of the it's conversation of him, because everything about Littlefinger has always been again seeing 10, 12 steps ahead of every character, you know. It's always well, so- I, I think I think it comes down to like uh, during his conversation with Sansa and just like how she's handled herself since being here at the Erie. Uh, Littlefinger got a new idea, like what happens if. I marry Liza, and then, you know, at this moment, I just throw her out the door. You know, it's right. I, I think it's one of those things where, you know, knowing from the next couple episodes, he puts his faith in Sansa. And yes. I think, I think he, he takes a calculated risk. Right. And that's what he's all about. And right. I think it's like he saw this opportunity to better his position and eliminate a liability. And he went for it. Like, right. you know, it's like, he took a uh, risk. Yeah, it's it's like big risk, big reward. Right. Uh, you know, but big risk, big punishment. So right. he decides to, to gamble. Later on, right, because as we come to see later on, obviously we know that uh, you know, the long term of him kind of 
putting his faith in Sansa in that moment, him actually trusting another person for something that was kind of a spur-of-the-moment decision as opposed to something he calculated. This is not the same as him making the plan with Olena to kill Joffrey, where the two of them, that was so planned out, it benefited them both, ultimately, you know, as far as Olena not having to have her granddaughter marry Joffrey and Littlefinger kind of, you know, keeping his enemies confused in that sense. But... Uh, this is kind of a spur of the moment decision. And as we see, regardless, like, I'll, I'll save the, you know, the little finger, you know, kind of what happens afterwards as far as how little finger kind of, you know, reacts to that decision in the books versus how he carries it out in the show. I'll save that for the later seasons. But we see, like, this is, this moment right here in hindsight is the beginning of the end for him. And I think that's a great spot to leave off because, again, it's because it's the first time that he's ever actually had been forced to put his faith in another person for no other reason other than just the, the the deliberation of the timing of events immediately in that setting, which is something that he's probably never had to do before in his entire life, and it's a thing that is going to come back and bite him in the ass. And with that being said, that is our review, yeah. our recap of Season 4, Episode 7, Mockingbird, another fantastic episode that is just setting us up for the next three episodes, which, again, it's just it's gangbusters after gangbusters after gangbusters. We've got three episodes left of this season. Still my favorite season of the whole show. Before we get into the very problematic season five, I want to thank you guys all once again for joining us for another episode. Like I said, these episodes are going to primarily remain on Spotify and Apple Podcasts going forward. We might put up a bonus episode on YouTube here and there, but keep tuning in for new episodes every Friday. Like I said, we're going all the way up until the finale. We're not stopping until then. Be sure to follow Professor Pat with everything he's got going on at Patrick W. Huber on Instagram. Follow myself at Movie Nerd Reviews across Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Letterboxd, Serialized, TikTok. Fortunately, I am forced to join that platform. Of course, be sure to follow the at official Talking TV podcast, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. And as always, people, oh, and of course, be sure to click the subscribe button on the YouTube channel. Be sure to click the like button and the subscribe button. And as always, remember, 12 seasons in a short film. And watch more movies. We'll more J-Law like movies, man. <laughs> oh, man. They may regret that. We'll see you guys next time. <laughs>